all, and welcome back to the Everyday Hope Podcast. Good to be with you all again. I'd like to say happy anniversary to my beautiful wife of 33 years as of yesterday. 33 years and counting. Now today I want to talk about how we define a person. Know what I mean? We like to put folks into categories so we can understand them. We like to define folks, but how do we do that? Well, there are certainly a lot of theories. For example, have you ever heard someone say, you are what you eat? That's a little odd to bring into this conversation. You are what you eat, so if you eat a banana, you're a banana. I find that funny because I've eaten a few bananas and I never seem to turn into one. Obviously, it doesn't mean that you actually turn into a banana. It really means that our bodies digest and break down the food we eat into the fuel that drives our bodies. We actually process and utilize the nutrients in the food to build ourselves up. So the saying means that if you eat good things with a lot of nutrition and very little bad stuff, your body will reflect that. So be thoughtful of what you eat. But it doesn't mean that your food defines you. It doesn't mean that if you eat a banana, you possess the nature of banana in your moral inner self. So if we want to find the formula that helps define the nature of a human, we need to keep looking. Okay, so how about this? You are what you think you are. Well, this basically says that our own self-perception defines us. It's a popular notion, and, and it fits nicely into the postmodern mindset. However we perceive ourselves, that's who we are. That's what our nature is. Now, there are so many problems with this, I can't address them all here, but I think we all know that people think a lot of things about themselves, and that doesn't necessarily make them true. However, there's a profound confirmation in our avowal of a thought. What I mean by that is that when we're willing to say a thing out loud, when, when we affirm or avow something about ourselves, that verbal confession makes an abstract inner thought an outer reality. But the thought itself isn't really enough. So maybe it would be better to say, you are what you say you are. Well, this means that the self-definition of a person defines them. If I say I'm something, then I am that thing. I define my own nature. But I have an issue with that. There's so many people who try to paint themselves as something other than they are. Years ago, I wrote a little skit called The Environmentalist. It was a silly skit about a guy who went on and on about how much he cared about the environment. But during the course of the skit, you see him buy the wrong laundry detergent and drive his gas guzzling car and dump old car batteries out in the desert. I might say I'm a baseball player, but if I don't ever play baseball, well, you know, you see what I'm saying. So it's clear that what I say about myself doesn't always define my true nature. We often use descriptions of ourselves as excuses for or against certain action. So they're not really who we are. We also struggle with the difference between who we wish we were and who we truly are. Based on my little skit, we need to go past what we say and look at what we do. After all, they say actions speak louder than words, right? So it might be appropriate to say that I am what I do. But I still have a problem with that. Is an action a sure enough indicator of my true nature? I only ask because of a few small issues. Let me give you an example. I stole $5 once. I was six years old and I took a Finsky out of my grandmother's purse. Am I a thief? Is, is that who I am? Or how about this? I was on TV once. Does that make me a TV star? How do you know? How do you know I'm not an actor? Right, because you don't see me on TV or in the movies regularly. I'm not a thief because I don't steal regularly. A one-time act can't truly define a human being's nature, right? You can't say someone's an environmentalist simply because they bought a pack of CFL light bulbs once. 
or one time took their old car battery to a proper disposal location. Just like a single lie told once in a moment of youthful inexperience doesn't define a person as a liar for the rest of their lives. So before I call someone an environmentalist, I want to know that they regularly dispose of hazardous material in the right way and, and regularly use energy-efficient bulbs and regularly recycle all of their stuff and regularly well, what a, drive a Prius, right? With me? So now we're saying that we are what we do repeatedly. The way we behave in an ongoing way is an indication of who we are. And maybe it's not that those actions define us. Maybe, maybe the truth is that those actions reveal us. We know a person's nature by watching how they behave over the long haul. It's the only real measure we have, right? But again, what we're really saying is not that repeated actions define a person, but they reveal their nature, which makes me think that we're really talking about motives. We're talking about why a person does what they do. What a person believes and thinks in their heart is the engine that drives their actions. And so their actions reveal the true heart of a person, a notion that's confirmed in Matthew 15, 19. I'm bringing all this up today because it seems like this discussion is at the heart of what's going on in Sardis. The church at Sardis seems to have been filled with people whose faith amounted to lip service. They said they were Christians. They professed membership in the church. They said they followed Jesus. But Jesus accuses them of having a dead faith. It's pretty serious business. So let's talk about Sardis and see what this message has to say to us. Now, the city of Sardis had its heyday long before the Roman Empire. It was an important Lydian city. It was built against the side of a cliff. The inhabitants believed that this made the city impenetrable from that side of the city. So the city's defenses focused on other approaches. Imagine their surprise when they were conquered by Cyrus of Persia in the 6th century BC. And imagine how surprised they were when King Cyrus had a skilled climber scale this wall and penetrate the city. Sardis was also conquered by Antiochus IV in 133 and became an important Seleucid city. I was surprised to learn that Antiochus did the same thing as Cyrus some 400 years later. He had a small band of soldiers scale the cliff and enter the city. So this city was twice conquered due to a lack of watchfulness. And after all this, it finally came under Roman control in the first century BC. But its glory days were long past. So let's take a look at the message to the church at Sardis in Revelation 3. Now, I know I say the same thing in every episode, but it's important to remember the formula these messages follow. All seven messages include the same seven sections, although the content of each is unique for that church. And as always, I'm going to read the message to Sardis using this framework. So this is Revelation 3, verses 1 through 6. Now, verse 1 covers the first four parts, the destination, the command to write, the thus says section, and the description of the speaker, who, of course, is Jesus. So, verse 1 says, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, that sounds familiar, right? We've seen this image of Jesus before, possessing the spirits of the churches, right? Then comes the I know section. Verses 1 to 2, Jesus says, I know your works. You have a name of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is on the point of death, for I have not found your works perfect in the sight of my God. Now, even though we've heard some negative messages to churches doing bad stuff, this is the first time we didn't at least hear something positive in the I know section, right? This kind of reminds me of the book of James with this being dead thing, which is something we're going to talk about a little later. Then comes the arrangement section in verses 3 to 4. 
He says, remember then what you received and heard. Obey it and repent. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. Yet you still have a few persons in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white for they are worthy. Okay, so a little different arrangement than we're used to. Jesus points out their flaws in the I know section, but here we find out that there are still some faithful in Sardis who are keeping the faith. Then finally, the proclamation in verses five to six. If you conquer, you will be clothed like them in white robes, and I will not blot out your name out of the book of life. I will confess your name before my father and before his angels. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the spirit is saying to the churches. So this sounds very much like the future I want for myself, right? So the church at Sardis seems to have been filled with people who said they were Christians. They professed membership in the church. They professed affiliation with the religion that came to be known as Christianity. Yet Jesus accuses them of being dead. He says, I know your works and you, even though you talk a good talk, possess a dead faith. Now, I don't know about you, but whenever I hear the phrase dead faith, I can't help but think of James chapter 2. I know James isn't a fun book to read, but Revelation 3 kind of draws us there, so let's just go there. Now, if you were to poll a thousand random Christians and just ask them what their favorite passage of scripture is, my guess is that very few would say James chapter 2. You'd get some Isaiah 40s and some Romans 8s, some John 3s, maybe a Philippians 4, and lots of Psalms, but you'd get very few James 2s. And why? Because James 2 says something that seems to contradict the message of salvation by grace in the New Testament, and that makes us cringe with a feeling of drastic inadequacy. Listen to some of the choicest excerpts from this chapter. Verse 14, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but do not have works? Can faith save you? And verse 17, So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. And then verse 21, Was not our ancestor Abraham justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? Verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And then verse 26, for just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is also dead. So what is this chapter telling us? Well, it seems to tell us that good works are what matters, right? Faith is not really important. We're justified by our good works. However, we read from Paul that works earn us nothing and that we are saved only by grace, grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and not by works, so that no one can boast. That's Ephesians 2. So where does James get off? How can James contradict Galatians and Ephesians so monumentally? Well, I think the problem with James is twofold. First, we don't read it carefully enough. And second, we really don't want to hear this message. And problem number one is not an uncommon one. We hear things like faith without works is dead, and we close James and go back to Galatians. But if we really read James, I think we'll hear a very important message. You see, the context of James chapter 2 is how to obey Christ's command to really love our neighbor. Showing partiality to the rich and beautiful doesn't get it done. Blessing the poor and naked without giving them food and clothing doesn't get it done. In effect, James says, lip service doesn't get it done. Christianity is not about declaring yourself a Christian. It's about denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following Jesus. You see... Christians have always placed emphasis on the oral declaration of our faith. You know, we get someone to pray the prayer. And some may have forgotten what really matters. Our oral profession of faith is merely a small first step in a lifelong race. Faith is the way we act every day. Faith is about the choices we make and who rules those choices. Like love, faith is more about what we do than what we say. That's what James is saying. 
He looks each professing Christian square in the eye and says, look, you can claim Christ all you want, but if you truly believe in him, your faith will be revealed in your actions. True faith produces a certain kind of behavior, period. Grace saves us. We receive that grace through faith in Jesus. But faith that doesn't change the way we think, speak, and act? I have to wonder if we really believe what we say we believe. This is the message to the church in Sardis. It's a dead church. These are people who call themselves Christians, but fail to do what Christ would have them do. And as with previous messages, the message here isn't, I'm disappointed, but it's all good. No, the message is more serious. Jesus says that if they don't begin to live like they believe, he will come like a thief. He will come to take away, and they won't know when he's coming. You know, the traditional view of this passage is that Jesus is talking about the end when he comes to get his own people. And since you don't know when he's coming, you can't wait until the end and then get your act together because it'll be a surprise and he'll catch you as you are. Remember that the message to each church has been, to those who conquer, I will give something pertaining to eternal life. So let's just think about what the message to each church has been. Maybe, maybe better to say how the message to each church has closed, right? Jesus says, to those who conquer, I will give you something pertaining to eternal life, right? With me? To Ephesus, it was the right to eat from the tree of life. To Smyrna, it was the promise not to be harmed by the second death, the spiritual death. To Pergamum, it was a new name, which in the ancient Near East implies a changed nature. What Paul tells us is a changing of our perishable nature to an imperishable one. And then to Thyatira, it was participation in the future messianic rule of Jesus. Even here in Sardis, the promise is that your name will never be plotted out in the book of life. All of these are powerful images of the eternal life Jesus offers to his followers. But to the fakers in Sardis who say they have faith, but don't really. Jesus will come as a thief and they will never see him coming. And I want to be clear about something here. The promises Jesus is making are not to the perfect people. Truly faithful people will still make mistakes and they will probably still sin. There are so many passages of scripture that show us that perfection is not the criteria. It's faith. It's true faith. And while true faith will cause us to strive to do God's will, we're still imperfect. We may still make mistakes. So don't be tricked into thinking that any mistakes you may make or have made in the past exclude you from life. That's, that's not what it's saying. We all know the difference between people who truly care about the environment, but throw a soda can in the trash once in a while out of anger or frustration. And people who say they love the environment, but never recycle anything. You see what I'm saying? It's about what's in your heart. Faith is about what's in your heart. And what's in your heart will change the way you act. In every age, the church has struggled with the message to Sardis. In every age, churches have claimed affinity with Christ, yet some have refused to actually follow him. In every age, some church tries to rewrite scripture in order to have it accommodate the way they want to live. It's the same for individual Christians. There are always folks who say that they're Christians, but don't seem to direct their lives toward Christ. And it can happen for a lot of reasons. Maybe it's as simple as being caught up in life, caught up in the way the world is going. It's always a challenge to be in the culture and yet remain distinct from it. You see, we have been called to be salt and light in the world. So we can't, like some religious groups, withdraw completely from society since we will not bring our salt and light to them. We have to find a way to remain distinct 
to follow Jesus' commands no matter how they conflict with culture in order to actually be salt in a decaying place and light in a dark place. We can't compromise our faith simply because times have changed. God doesn't change his mind about right and wrong simply because technology is advanced or because people think they're smarter now than they were before. What Jesus told us 2,000 years ago is remain true, will remain true, is in fact true. The message to Sardis is a call to every church and every Christian to guard against the death of our faith. Christianity isn't merely a profession of faith from a contrite heart. It's a changed thinking at the very core of that heart. And changed thinking will result in changed actions. Wake up. Strengthen what remains. Let your faith be alive and real. Let it change the way you think and act in this world. There is no way to obey both the message to Ephesus, love your neighbor, and Pergamum, cling to sound doctrine, unless your faith is alive and well. And remember, our works don't save us. They reveal what we truly believe. So let your works show your living and active faith. Amen? All right. I'm going to pray for you now. And as always, remember the rule. Be safe. Keep your eyes on what you're doing. Just let your heart pray with me now. Father, we thank you for the difficult messages in Revelation. We thank you for reminding us what it means to belong to you. We believe. Help our unbelief. We believe. Help us to act out that faith daily. Be with us, Lord, and show us the decisions that we need to surrender to you in faith. We praise you, Lord, for giving us life, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Thank you all for joining me again this time. I will see you soon.